Romans 8, verses 9 to 39. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of God, of, of Christ, does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the minds of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Is a wonderful commentary on Romans chapter 8. I don't know if that was the intention of Sam McBrainney when they wrote it and when Anita Jerem illustrated it. But let me remind you of the truth herein. Little Nut Brown Hair, when she was going to, to bed, held onto Big Nut Brown Hair's very long ears. He wanted to be sure that Big Nut Brown Hair was listening. Guess how much I love you, he said. I don't think I could guess that, said Big Nut Brown Hair. And then the comparisons begin. I think it's this much as... He stretched out his little arms. And then the big nut brown hair says, no, 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 it's this much. Because she's got bigger arms, then the stretch is, is greater. And then the comparisons continue. What about if I stretch my body up to the sky? Well, big nut brown's body's hair is, of course, longer. What about if I put my tiptoes up to the sky? No, no, well, big nut brown's hair's legs are longer. And so they can go higher still. What about if I bounce? Can I bounce higher than you? And then, as you know, as the story ends, Big Nut Brown Hair says, I love you from here to the moon and back. It's a wonderful little book that I'm sure Sam McBrainy has made quite a pretty penny out of. It's been made into jigsaws and puzzles as well. It's a wonderful story about assurance. The assurance a little nut brown hair can have in the love of her mum, of Big Nut Brown Hair. And in the same vein, Romans chapter 8 is a wonderful, perhaps the greatest chapter in the whole Bible that teaches of the sovereignty of God so that we can understand the difficult chapters of chapters 9, 10 and 11 that follow. And it's a wonderful, not a story, but it's a wonderful true chapter about the assurance that every Christian can have about the love, not that they have for God, but that God has for each one of us. It's a remarkable chapter that Paul writes about. It's the chapter in the Bible that if you want to understand the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, you've got to come to Romans chapter 8 because it's saturated with what he does, who he is, at least for the first two-thirds of the chapter. Did you notice the Holy Spirit is mentioned 17 times in the opening verses, but then as we get to the latter stages of the chapter, at least verses 31 to 39, it's as if the focus shifts from him to the one to whom his ministry is all about, to Jesus, namely. We've learnt, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit. His person and his work is all about showing the beauty of Christ, pointing away from himself and to Jesus. There's no condemnation, you're eternally safe, you're eternally secure. We've seen also that 
Something amazing has happened in the life of every Christian. We can now call God our Father, Daddy, Abba, Father. And the Holy Spirit doesn't just convict us and, and give us this new knowledge. He also enables us and reassures us as we speak words that we can't even express. The Holy Spirit can come close to make Jesus lovely and bring him near to us, metaphorically speaking. But why does the Holy Spirit recede towards the end of the chapter? And as the assurance kind of increases, verses 31 to 39, I am persuaded, I am convinced. Look at these phrases. I am assured. Who would bring a charge against us? Who will condemn us? All this rhetorical questions that's happening towards the end of the chapter, it's as if the Holy Spirit recedes. Why? Because I think that underscores his role. It's not about me saying the Holy Spirit. It's all about the confidence you can have, not in big nut brown hairs love, but in the love of Jesus Christ, in the sure and certain promises of God. You are eternally safe and secure forever. It's not about me. He can recede because it's all about the promises and purposes of King Jesus. And friends, this is what we need. This is why this book has sold millions of copies, is it not? Because it touches a nerve. We all want someone to love, some queen, decades ago. But more than that, we want someone to love us. With all our spots, with all our bruises, with all our warts, with all the uh, mistakes we've made, we long for someone to know us and to love us. It's our greatest love. And as Christians, with our daisy theology that we thought about last week, we can be very fickle. I can. When I have a good day, when I read my Bible, when I pray some, when I'm kind to someone, he loves me. But then it's the next day when I forget to read my Bible in the busyness of life. I let Jesus down. He loves me not. The Bible says, Romans 8 says, you can be assured, not of your love for Jesus, but you can be assured of God's love for you. And three convictions, three principles that he brings out. Verse 28. Here's the first conviction, the first principle that I haven't got a lot of time on, but it's so important. Bad things will turn out for good. Bad things will turn out for good. This is a whole sermon series, but let's give it four minutes. How can I be assured that God loves me? Because of this rock-solid truth from verse 28. Our bad things will turn out for good. Look at verse 28. You might know it off by heart. All things are working together for good to those who love God and are called according to his good purpose. Now, what does that mean? We could take every sentence apart in Romans 8. We could take this sentence apart and meditate on every single sentence. But this truth is so significant, it's saying that all our bad things will turn out for good. But this is not simply a Christian fortune cookie that can be snapped open and enjoyed in a glib way and then you move on to the next item in your life. Look at how this is teaching the sovereignty of God that begins in Genesis 1 and right through to Revelation. And it's condensed into this one truth. Our bad things will turn out for good. That sounds so glib. But one of my favourite stories, if we put two stories together with the same geographical location, help me to grasp the sovereignty of God. What do I mean? I read this in a book, as well as the Bible. In Genesis 37 and in 2 Kings chapter 6, you read of one geographical location. It's called Dothan. It sounds like it should be in Star Wars, but it's not. 
In Dothan, you realize, if you know the story of Joseph, that is where Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. The whole story of Joseph is an absolute mess. There's a triumph at the end, but you recognize for decades, for decades, God is silent. He looks like he's disappeared from the stage of Joseph's life. But at Dothan, it's the first time that Joseph very inarticulately says, God, if you're there, help me. Get this out. Get me out of this kind of cistern. My brothers have let me down. They want me off the scene. They're jealous of me, and I'm proud of them, their safety. If you're there, help. He's in Dothan. And for 10, 20, 30 years that follow, God is not on the scene. There's silence. But in the silence, God is still there. The second time Dothan is mentioned in the Bible is in 2 Kings 6. In 2 Kings 6, Elisha is in Dothan. The town has now become a city and he's surrounded by the enemies of God. And he cries out the same prayer as Joseph. If you're there, help me. And God answers very swiftly and sends fiery chariots and sends the warring angel and defeats miraculously in an amazing and a sudden way the enemies of God. And Elisha is freed. Same place in geography, same prayer, different times, same God. God answers in his sovereignty and in silence to Joseph. You know the story from Joseph, we fast forward, if he, God had just rescued him straight away, Joseph's family would not have been rescued from their difficulties. That's an understatement. Tens of thousands of people of God's people would not have been saved from a famine if God had answered Joseph's prayer. God answered Joseph's prayer, but with silence. And sometimes that's the hardest answer to our prayers, is it not? God is actively working sometimes in the slowness. God is actively and patiently working sometimes in the silence. But sometimes God answers very quickly. And all of that truth is in this one sentence, Romans 8, 28. Our bad things will turn out for good. Later on in the chapter, when uh, Paul goes into rhetoric at the very end, he's saying, what can separate us? Can time, can space, can cosmic powers? No, nothing can separate us from the love of God. In other words, everything is falling apart. It's the second rule of thermodynamics, if you're into that sort of thing. Everything's decaying. Everything is slowing down. But in this decay, there's one thing that you can put your feet upon, and it's the sovereignty and the character of God. John Newton put it in a wonderful way. He says this, Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. In other words, if your heart is beating today, that is a mercy of God, sustaining under the rules of science, is the, are the hands of God, sustaining the world, sustaining your life, giving you your next breath, the sustaining power of God. There's no reason that the world is still turning. Behind the rule of gravity is the hand of God. And that means there's no reason the world is still turning unless God has a good, pleasing and perfect plan for it. Your bad things will turn out for good. It's a hard teaching when you're struggling. It's something you need to bank when the sun is shining in your life. Because hard times will come. But friends, Paul is saying, even when bad things happen, and not just a sudden bad thing, not a car reversing into a lake with children in it, 
because someone left a handbrake off. How do you even minister into that context? I'm not sure. But the Bible teaches from beginning to end, whether it's Dothan, whether it's the life of Jesus, whether it's the disciples' experience, bad things will always turn out for good. God works in the silence. God works in the suddenness. Bad things will always turn out for good. That's four minutes. I'll move on. Here's the second principle, though. And we'll take some more time on the next two. The good things we have cannot be lost. The good things we have cannot be lost. Still in Romans 8.28. If you've been a Christian for a while, you would have come across a lot of tat. Some of that is sold at the Christian Resources Exhibition. There's some good things there as well. You would have come perhaps upon a blessing box. A blessing box is a little bit like where you just pull out verses that someone's put together, you can open them up, and it's one sentence that someone's ripped completely out of context from the Bible, and it's supposed to do you good. It's very, very unhelpful on the whole. Romans 8.28 must not be treated in that way. Bible College taught me that following Romans 28 is Romans 29, and the two of them are joined together. Notice 28 and into 29. This shows you that to understand Romans 8.28, you've got to understand Romans 8.29. Look at the word for that joins them together. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the likeness of his Son. Here's the second principle. Our bad things will work for good. But here's the second principle. If you follow Jesus... He does not promise you an improvement to your life. He promises you a whole new life. In sentence 29 is the answer to the promise of sentence 28. It doesn't say when you become a Christian you get your best life now. That's not true. Your best life is in the future. The best is yet to be. But here is a promise from the lips of Jesus and the lips of Paul that the best is yet to be. I'll go ahead to prepare a future for you, a home for you. Verse 29 tells us what the good is of verse 28. I want you to know something. Being a Christian is not about having a great marriage. Your marriage can fall apart and you can still be a faithful Christian. It's not about getting a job promotion when you follow Jesus because it's a religious insurance of some sort. Here's the good that the gospel is all about. Jesus, by his spirit, is working in sentence 29 to conform us to the character of his son. That is the promises that Paul wants to say to us. At seven o'clock this morning, there were two boys in our home working with air-drying clay on our worktop. Kept them quiet for at least an hour. It's money well spent. What they were doing, they were warming it up with their hands. Then they were sculpting it, and then they were moulding it, and then they were smoothing it, and then they were making it into different shapes, into something amazing in their imagination, polishing it, smoothing it with some water. It may not be water, but that is exactly how the Holy Spirit works to make us like his son, 8.29. What is the purpose? Verse 29 into 30 says it's about making you more like Jesus Christ. It's not your best life now. And how does that happen? So often it's through the smoothing, it's through the cutting, it's through the wounding, it's through suffering. Suffering is the sandpaper and the marinade of God, someone has said. If you want to see someone who's more and more like Jesus Christ, who've been made more into the purpose and likeness of his son, they will have suffered. More often than not, they will have plenty of grey hairs. Because it takes decades to become like Jesus. Very rarely does it happen in a young person's heart immediately. 
But that's not all. If your future is guaranteed, if you're through whatever means is necessary, you become more like Jesus. Look at sentence 30. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And then he does one more thing. He also glorified. Anyone who's been around a while will know that this is not a typo. If you know something about the order of Christian uh, salvation, Latin, auto salutis, you'll know that we've not yet been glorified. That's a future thing that will happen. So has Paul made a typo by saying, and those he justified, he also glorified. That's past tense. I can remember that from school. The answer is no. This is an intentional, spirit-empowered past tense. Because it is so certain, because God is so purposeful and so powerful that your seat is reserved next to Jesus and Moses and Paul. It's as if you're already glorified a future event now. And so Paul can write, you've been predestined, you've been called, you've been justified in Jesus, but you've also been glorified in Jesus. Past tense, but it's a future event, fully glorified in the future. God, by his Spirit, is going to make you as happy and as holy and as glorified as his Son. Now that, we should stop there and drop the mic and do whatever young people do these, in these days. That's an amazing truth that no one has cried out and shouted hallelujah. It's a shame on us actually. It's a remarkable truth that the Holy Spirit is making this truth real to us and he's made it real and close to Paul that one day we'll be radiant and happy and as holy as King Jesus. And that's what he's in the business of. That's how verses 28 and 29 work together with 30. You will be predestined. It's in the past. God has planned it before the creation of the world. He's called a people to himself. A right royal mess. But he's in the business of transformation. And he's going to make us into the likeness of his son. And one day we'll see him. Because our bad things, he's going to turn into good. But also it says, the good things we have can never be lost. But that's only understood when you understand that the best is yet to come. Thirdly, look at sentence 31. The best is yet to come. At this point, Paul soars. He gets completely carried away. It's a wonderful climax to a wonderful chapter. And he goes into the skill of rhetoric. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how shall he not along with him freely give us all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? What's he doing? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness? This is not an uh, ethereal concept for Paul. This is his life. You go and look at 2 Corinthians. You go and read the whole book of Acts. You see how God led Paul into and in the midst of and through tremendous suffering, shipwreck, lashings, hardships, stoning, persecution to the max. And yet he can say, we are more than conquerors. We didn't just conquer, we're more than conquerors because Jesus 
sustained me. In the midst of it, I knew his presence, I knew his help, and so nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. I've experienced it in my life, says Paul, and that's why I want to write it to you. Be assured, not of big nut brown hairs love, be assured of the safety of King Jesus and every one of his children. I didn't just scrape through. I'm not just a conqueror. Didn't win Wimbledon. I'm a more than a conqueror. I don't know what words to use, says Paul. He's soaring like an eagle. He's struggling for words. What will separate us from the love of Christ? Anything outside is going to separate us? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? And then he writes, as it is written, for your sake we face, day or, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's Psalm 44. Why does he put that in there? I think because he's saying to Christians who if they stand up for Jesus would all probability lose their head or their life. It's not a new thing. Christians throughout the ages have been suffering in this way. It might be a new king on the throne. There might be a new emperor. There might be a new way for you to be killed at the sport of the Roman crowd in the Colosseum. That wasn't there in the past. But Christians before you have suffered and been faithful for King Jesus. Do not think that God will leave you. Psalm 44, these terrible oppositions, these terrible things. Persevere. God hasn't changed. The emperor may have changed, but persevere. Friends, don't be ridiculous in thinking that we are the only generation where things are hard. Things are not hard in the UK. They are uncomfortable. They are slightly changing culture. Think globally. Think historically. And Paul is saying, nothing, nothing can... We're just experiencing hardship. We complain, I complain when the uh, aircon's not working, that we've got no fans in the school hall. It's just an irritation. Paul has had been through it all, and he is saying, don't think more highly of yourself. Psalm 44, this happened in the Old Testament times. God hasn't changed. The hands of the persecutor may change. But be prepared, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Verse 35, what, or who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble? What about nakedness, peril, sword? Then he says, for your sake we are being slaughtered all day long. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through him who loved us. At this point, Paul uses a specific Greek word in the aorist tense. That's a past tense uh, verb that has a definitive point that it's referring to. He's thinking of the cross. He's not thinking anywhere else. And he says this in verse 32. How shall we respond to this, sentence 31, if God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This sentence gave me the chills this week. When I read it, I don't know what time I'd missed it and missed it and missed it, and I read it and it gave me the chills. God spared not his son. Where does Paul go to reassure people who will face death if they stand up for Jesus. He says, nothing will separate us, but here is the person, here's the event that you need to be consumed about. It's the cross of Jesus. 
He who did not spare his son. If you don't see the fact, the assurance, that when Jesus was on the cross, God did not let go of you then, hell was being poured out upon him, the wrath for our sin that we deserve was poured on Jesus, and he's still holding on to us. Is there any other way? No. For the glory of his Father and for the security eternally of us, Jesus said, I will go through with it because I love you more than anything and I've got a heart for a people. I mean, just imagine if someone, if someone was promised to buy you a new Mercedes-Benz, not a saloon, a four by four, top of the range. They're going to foot the bill. I don't know how much they cost, 60,000 pounds. Leather everything, air conditioning, we need that today. Top of the range, paintwork, everything because they want to give it to you as a gift. And then, because it's a presence, they're going to say, oh, actually, can you do me a, a favour and just put a big bow, pink, right on the bonnet? Or blue, if it's a guy, right on the bonnet. How much will that cost? Well, that would cost £15 extra. No way! Okay, the deal's off. So it's just be absolutely absurd. If you're going to spend £60,000 on a car, £15, phew, yeah, put three on. Here is Paul, and he's saying... If God has given you his son, how much more will he not give you all things? He's going to give you the bow, or ten bows, because he loves you. And that's what Paul is saying here. God loves you so much. You are so safe. You are so secure. There is nothing that can get, you in, can get in the way of your love, or his love for you. He gave you his son. He didn't spare him. I think it was Spurgeon who says... Jesus Christ was up on the cross. He was nailed, he was bleeding, he was dying. He was looking down on the people, betraying him and forsaking him and denying him. And in the greatest act of love in the history of the universe, he stayed. He stayed. That's what the cross points us to. That's what the table brings to the front of our minds every single time we celebrate the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection. Look at this sweeping statement to finish up, 38, 39. I am absolutely certain, Paul uses again a specific word. It's intense, it's persuasive, it's absolute certainty. He bursts out, he stretches to the limits of his thesaurus that he's got next to him with his quill. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities, nor heaven nor hell, nor height nor depth, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing can dislodge you from his love and nothing can dislodge his love from you. Why? How? Because he stayed. Because he stayed on the cross. The work of the Holy Spirit is never to draw attention to himself. It's always to show us that he stayed that's why he recedes at the end of this marvellous chapter. But in the middle of the chapter, when the Holy Spirit's ministry is described as a person that can come close to you, that can reassure you, that's really what we need more of, the Holy Spirit to come close to us and rub in this wonderful truth that he stayed. So it's not abstract, it's not just historical, and it is historical. But it's real, and he did it for you, and he did it for me. 
That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to say yes and to bring it close and to feel and sense that truth. Think about it afresh. If you think, because of your fickleness, that God would let go of you, he didn't do it at the cross. So why on earth would he do it today? He wouldn't. He's paid for the bow. (laughs) Friends, this is the love that uh, this little book describes. More than that, this is the love that we need. Proverbs says that uh, love of a friend or a mother or a father will always let us down. But there is a love that sticks closer than a brother. And his name is Jesus. And therefore, this is the love we need. Nothing, neither death nor life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, anything in all creation can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you certain of that? If you are, that's the ballast in your heart that will empower you to live with Jesus as number one. It's a love that will assure you, no matter what God leads you into, that he will never leave you, he's not forsaken you, and he never, ever will. Let's pray.